some of the hardest questions that are raised against Christianity. And we're trying to do that, you know, with honesty and biblical clarity and, and with empathy because people have questions. Now, if you happen to be here for the first or second time, you're in for a treat because it just so happens today I'm preaching on hell. Uh, now, we don't preach on hell every Sunday. I don't know if we preach on hell much since I've been here. But the question is this. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? I mean, this is a real question, right? I mean, it seems like if hell is uh, as bad as people say, this is the problem of suffering on steroids. Really? I mean, forever seems like a long time, and if people end up in hell forever, it's a good question. How could a loving God uh, send someone into a place that is not so nice for an unending uh, period of time. I mean, this seems hard to reconcile with a loving God, especially as revealed in Jesus Christ. So what gives? Well, perhaps it's the fact that God is loving uh, that's part of the issue here. See, God is love, and he's created humankind's humankind to be uh, capable of love. That is, they're free moral agents. You see, in order to be able to love, you have to have at least a significant amount of free choice. It doesn't have to be maximal, but you have to be able to enter into loving relationships. There's no such thing as coerced love, right? Uh, it's like a round triangle or a married bachelor. You cannot coerce somebody to, to love you. It's a contradiction in terms. I mean, that's manipulation, that kind of thing. So if God wanted people that he could love and to love him back and that could love one another, he gave them, he granted them a certain amount of free choice. So it's necessarily entailed that creatures have at least some say so, the ability to choose God or not God. And I think that could be part of the, the issue with this whole problem. I mean, perhaps it's the misuse of this very good gift, that is free choice, that made it possible for moral agents to choose against God and selfishly kind of choose their own self-centered ways. And perhaps hell, in some sense, is giving people what they want. That is to say, not God. If you don't want God, maybe ultimately what you're granted is exactly what you want. And the thought of hell really is frightening. You know, if you look at this image up here, many years ago as a, as a kid, I had this crazy dream. I mean, it was so real to me. And I, mean, I don't know whether I had watched some show on television like a, a cartoon, but I found myself in what looked like a volcano that extended to the center of the earth. And there were like almost spiraling downward or along the edges of uh, this uh, tunnel where there's just a little bit of space to kind of stand. And I saw all of these horrible creatures. Now, it's a dream, but it scared me. Uh, I mean, it, there was fire. There was brimstone. I had this dream, and, I, and in some sense, it scared the hell out of me uh, or maybe scared me out of hell. It was, it, was, it was a very frightening dream. And you see, the truth is, uh, we talk about hell, and some of the paintings you see in the medieval period, you see all these torture devices. Now, I, I don't know whether hell's exactly like that. 
I don't know how much is metaphor in the sense that, you know, what, how much is literal fire and that kind of thing, because it seems like there might not even be light in hell. But I do know this. It's a real place, and it's a place you don't want to go. I mean, whether you look at it kind of metaphorically or not, it's still bad. Whether you think it smells like brimstone or not, it's bad. And the question really is, uh, you know, it makes you wonder, can God truly be loving and send anyone to hell? So if God is loving, I mean really loving, can he do that? Well, we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that's very famous, that everybody knows. It's John 3.16. Now you're thinking, how is this guy going to preach hell out of John 3.16? We usually have a very positive uh, look at John 3.16. Well, let's go there and, and read the passage together. We're not going to stop at verse 16. We're going to go through verse 18. It says this, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son that, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but the non-believer stands condemned already because he has not put his faith in the name of God's unique son. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, right now by the power of your spirit that you help us uh, try to understand this really difficult topic. God, it is hard to imagine uh, what it would be like apart from your presence. Lord, because we are beneficiaries, whether we know it or not, of your goodness. Whether we even believe or not in this world. Right now, we, we have experienced your goodness. God, I pray that you help me to preach this. I pray, God, that you help those who hear it, to receive it, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you use this message in time to point people to Jesus and to the pardon they have in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So right off the bat, one might question if there really is such a place as hell. I mean, it could just be a myth, right? This is a, some people think maybe it's just a myth. Well, I want to say this. Jesus believed that there was such a place. In fact, He said that when he returned as king, he would judge people and mete out justice. Notice that Jesus said what he says when he returns. What's he going to do? It says, Matthew 25, verse 41, it says, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, there's this whole scene about sheep and goats, you know, I grew up on a farm. You know, they say that uh, sheep go bad, goats say nah. You know, they say they, they want to say no to things. And in this uh, teaching, Jesus is saying that there are some people who uh, don't do the will of the Father, who reject him, and they're like goats, and they're going to be on the left hand. And there are others that are like sheep, Uh, that are going to be on the right hand. And what it really is is a picture to try to say, at some point, there is going to be a separation between the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And he's going to judge them. And here's the thing about it. Notice what it says. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you know hell wasn't designed for people? I mean, there, who wants to go there? <laughs> It was originally designed for these other moral agents, the devil, who fell with his angels. And the tr- it wasn't designed or meant for God's sons and daughters. Yet those who aligned themselves with the devil 
will end up where the devil goes. You'll follow him. Now, this, I mean, and this is a, it looks like a horrendous place. I mean, it says uh, fire. You know, I don't like fire. I almost burnt myself up one time playing around with kerosene and, and, and fire. I mean, I, it is, and I, when I was an EMT, I, if you've ever dealt, seen a burn victim, um, I, it is one of, even the smell. Has anyone ever burnt your hair? You know, you know that smell? It's a horrible, horrible smell. Now, the scripture says everlasting fire. Now, it might be the case that the fire and sulfur are kind of vivid metaphors describing something horrible. But whatever it's the case, it's a horrendously horrible place. I mean, we don't know. Like, I just don't know exactly what heaven looks like. And I don't know all of what hell looks like. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And, and, and the point of this message is not to describe in detail. There are a lot of books out there on what hell and heaven are like. You know, I don't know how many of them are true or how many are false. Uh, I know the dream I had wasn't pleasant. <laughs> you know, I'm inching along the edge, not trying to fall in. And I do remember calling out to God to save me, and I woke up uh, from this dream. Now, if this uh, <laughs> is bad, and it is, uh, no wonder people question God's goodness and love. I mean, so is God really loving? I mean, it seems like a really terrible place. I wouldn't want to not only go there, I wouldn't want to send anyone there. And if he is really loving, how can he send anyone to hell? So we're going to go back to our passage and look at it bit by bit. Now, I know this is a tough topic in the 21st century. Uh, and if it's your first time here, you're probably like, does this church always preach fire and brimstone, turn or burn? That's all. I heard that a lot growing up. But I don't want to downplay the reality of this. I mean, there's heaven to gain and hell to shun. Jesus tells us that God loves the world. Look at verse 16 again. The very first thing is, is God really loving? Well, actually it says, for God loved the world. And so much so that he wants to, and he wants to give them everlasting life. But he loves the world in such a way that he would give his unique son, his one and only son, so that people wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, it seems to me that God loves his creation. You see, a lot of religions, all religions have some form of justice. Or most of them will say there's some form of punishment for doing bad things. But it's, in Christianity, it's unique in that the creator loves his creation so much that he's willing to die in their place. This is no small thing. If you're going to put your trust in a God, if you want to be a part of a faith, I would rather put my trust in someone I know who will die for me than merely someone who demands that I die for him. Does that make sense? So whatever you think about hell, whatever you think about God, know this, that God loves the world so much that he would send his son to die to rescue the world. That's not small. Greater love has no man that he would lay down his life for a friend. We have God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, laying down his life for the world. And this is, this is to rescue us so that people aren't enduring through everlasting existence. We won't even call it life. 
without God is a kind of ongoing death in some sense. God wants his sons and daughters to enjoy everlasting life, not everlasting death and destruction. That's why Jesus came. God's love here is not in question. I don't know how you can question somebody who will die in your place. Have you ever heard of of a parent uh, dying for their child? How about a parent giving their child to die for someone else? You almost never hear of that. And he loves people enough to send his son to die in their place. Now, uh, but there's a catch. There is a catch. I mean, God wants to rescue the world, but we get, but notice this. It is for everyone who believes in him. Look at verse 16 again. It says, uh, so that everyone who believes in him will not, have, will not perish. Actually, go to the next slide. I, uh, nope, we go back to the, the slide before. <laughs> Let's see. I go back to the slide before that. And the slide before that. There we go. That's where I am. And uh, so everyone who believes in him is the catch. Uh, I mean, they must put their trust in him. You see, and here's the thing. What, you might ask why God would require that. Well, God isn't requiring that we work to to get good enough for salvation. Actually, other religions do that. He's just saying, put your trust in Jesus. It says, everyone who believes in him. Now, I want you to understand that belief doesn't mean something like, well, I believe God exists. Do you know in the book of James, the Bible says that demons believe God exists, that he's one, and they tremble. If you believe God exists, well, congratulations, you have devil faith. Uh, I mean, what I mean, even the demons uh, believe that. But what, what Christian faith is, is that we put our trust in him. You know, I've told the story before, but there's a story about a famous, uh, um, he's kind of like a, a high wire walker. And he used to stretch uh, a wire across, I'm actually going to be going there this, this month, Niagara Falls. And he would walk across this tightrope. Uh, and from one side to the other. And he did all kinds of weird things. I mean, he, he went, even went out there and cooked breakfast. Uh, I mean, this is the guy. He's got some serious balance and some serious nerves. And then he was so good at this. And one time he took a wheelbarrow across, and then he came back with it. And he says to the crowd, he says, Do you believe that I can put a person in here and, and get them across to the other side? And you know what? Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all so excited about this. And he says, well, get in. <laughs> now, <laughs> it illustrates the difference. It's one thing to say, I believe you can do it. It's quite another to put your life, your trust in him and climb into the wheelbarrow. But you know what's strange? There was an older woman there that actually did climb into the wheelbarrow. And he got her safely across. Turns out it was this guy's mother. Uh, but the point of it is simply this, that putting your faith in, in Jesus isn't about mere mental assent, that I believe Jesus existed. It's actually trusting him with your life. It's climbing in the wheelbarrow and trusting him to get you across. That's what Christian faith is. So uh, let's make it clear God is in the saving business. I mean, 
<laughs> he's not trying to, to destroy you. He's trying to save you. Notice what he's, he says. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world. This is verse 17. But that the world might be saved through him. See, God's not out to get you. Because if God was out to get you, you'd be God. Really, he's the one hitman, if he were a hitman, that would never miss his mark. If God was out to get you, in, in some negative way, you'd be God. See, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it. That wasn't why Jesus came. Actually, it was that the world might be saved through him. See, Jesus didn't have to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Well, now, what do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but the non-believer stands condemned already. Well, what I mean is, is like, it's not like Jesus had to show up to condemn people. People were already bad. They were already sinners. They were already messed up. They were, they were, they were uh, imperfect. I mean, they chose to follow their selfish ways. And you see, uh, they're, they're imperfect. This is what sin is, by the way. It's just meaning you're missing the mark. In some ways, you're not perfect. And I don't know about you, but I, I miss the mark sometimes. I mean, sometimes I sin. And actually, uh, you know, salvation really, in some sense, is very easy to attain. You know that? All you have to do for, to get everlasting life and be united with a perfect God is just be perfect. Well, so maybe it's not so easy. I mean, after all, nobody's perfect, right? I mean, uh, but the weird part is we're still commanded to be perfect and holy as he's holy. Matthew 5.48 says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. That's a pretty high bar. I mean, and you might wonder why he would set it so high. Now, now you might say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, like sometimes, you know, I, I, you know we can pat ourselves on the back because... You know, I've got my flaws, but I'm not killing somebody. You know, I'm relatively better than other people. But you see, actually, if you don't think you're a sinner, all you have to do is just imagine this. Imagine, I mean, we have, most of us have cell phones. Imagine you had a text bubble that appeared above your head that people could read for every thought that you have throughout the day. Could you imagine that? I mean, if... Yeah? I mean, I don't know about you, but the other day I was in traffic. And, and the text bubble that was above my head would not have been a good thing, particularly for a pastor, you know? And, and my point is simply this. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark in some way. We are imperfect. And God has set the standard so high. And, you know... I don't know if I could, one, I'm not perfect enough to set a standard. But even if I could, would I set it so high? What's the problem? I mean, the problem is, is this. Unlike God, who's perfectly loving, I'm not perfectly loving. And unlike God, who's perfectly just, I'm not perfectly just. You see, we all want God's love, but we're not so sure about the justice. Unless he's dealing with somebody else, you know. I want grace. When it's for me, but I want justice when someone's wronged me. You know, grace for me, but not for thee. And sometimes we're like that. But here's the thing. 
God, not only is he perfectly loving, he's perfectly just. He can't just sweep sin under the rug. We can kind of ignore that. But what if you saw everything perfectly and your justice was perfect, so it always has to be dealt with in some ways. You could really ask questions. We say, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Maybe another question might be, how could a just God send anyone to heaven? There's a good question. Because if you're perfectly just, and you look around the world is so suffused with sin, and I know I make mistakes, I sin, justice demands that sin is dealt with. Uh, and this penalty is paid. You know, so it's, it doesn't matter how big or small the sin is, sin has to be dealt with. But now we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. I mean, really, because uh, to have everlasting life and to be united with uh, a, a perfect God, uh, you, uh, well, you need to be perfect. I mean, and uh, he said to be holy even as he is holy, and God is holy. But this seems impossible, and it is, by the way. Because nobody's perfect. Well, almost nobody. There is one person, one man who was perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but Jesus, who has been tested in every way we are, yet without sin. There is one person who didn't sin. And he's not a person that's like oblivious to our, our plight. It's not like he doesn't understand temptation. In fact, it says in every point, he was tempted like we were, yet without sin. I mean, he was tested in every way. He could actually sympathize. This Greek word, sympatheo, it actually carries the force of empathize. He has walked a mile in your shoes. He understands your temptation. He understands your testing. He's gone through it. Jesus is the, the one and only person to have never sinned. And what the unique person who's absolutely perfect. And because Jesus is perfect and loving, we can approach this great high priest, that is Jesus, and his throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace. That's what it says in the very next verse. It says in verse 16, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive what? Mercy and find what? Grace to help us at the proper time. The proper time actually is right now, and of course it'll be again on Judgment Day. But the point is, is this, because of Jesus, his perfect sinless life, and because he can empathize with us, and because of what he's done, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace. Grace and mercy make it possible to be united with a perfect God. But that's only possible because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. You see, God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He actually deals with it. God's perfect justice demanded that sin be paid for and dealt with. His perfect love, though, provided the the grace and the mercy by which we are pardoned. Jesus, It it wasn't like God said, okay, I'm not going to look at the sin because perfect justice means he has to deal with it. So what did he do? He sends his son into the world who actually receives the penalty of sin on himself so that whoever puts their faith in him doesn't have to receive that penalty, but they get the grace and the mercy. I mean, so his perfect love provides a grace and mercy by which we are pardoned, and that's a key word. Remember, we already stand condemned. Did you know that? 
If you're a human and you've ever sinned, you stand condemned. We're all imperfect. And so in verse 18 of John 3, it says, Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but the non-believer stands condemned already. (laughs) Jesus didn't have to come to condemn us. Uh, We're pretty good at doing that on our own, right? I mean, through our own sin. And any sin is too much. But you know what? There's really good news. There's really good news. Anyone who believes in him, it says, if you go to that slide after, it's still verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. That's good news. And remember, we said it's not devil faith that you just believe he exists. It's climbing in the wheelbarrow. We don't have to be condemned. We can receive God's gracious, merciful pardon, and all we have to do is trust in God's unique son. I mean, it's a good deal. It's a very good deal as far as deals go. I mean, every bad thing I've ever done, it's like I can't, I can't, I can't get perfect enough to be embraced by a perfect God. That, his perfection would destroy me. So I have to have some way of being perfected outside of myself. And the, the answer is you put your trust in the perfect one. That's his son Jesus. And the Bible says that we are in Christ. I always picture, have you ever seen somebody go uh, deep sea diving in these, these, these wetsuits? They're just ensconced in a suit. It covers every part of them. It's kind of like that. You step into Christ. Christ envelops you. His perfection covers you. We're in Christ. And, but uh, that gets us the pardon. But if we reject Christ, we reject the pardon. You know, I read uh, this week about a baby born in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, to the Wilson couple. And this was way back in 1805. And the boy's name was George. That's my father's name. It actually happens to be my middle name. And uh, George was from an early age at a disadvantage. I mean, his mom lived in the Philadelphia almshouse, and his dad made his living on a boat at sea. George had no parental support or real supervision from his loved ones. He was, in a sense, left to figure out some things on his own, to try to make it in life on his own. Now, George wasn't able to really hold down a job, and as a result, he found himself stealing and, and just to make ends meet. Now, here's what's interesting. There was a pastor who mentored George, and he landed a job as a clerk with the U.S. Postal Service. My brother works for the U.S. Postal Service. My other brother works for FedEx. They're competitors. Uh, even still, at the age of 24, George was caught up in the wrong crowd. Uh, with wrong pursuits. You see, George became friends with a man named James Porter who proposed that they take advantage of George's position with the USPS. George knew of the train that transported mail from Pennsylvania, through Pennsylvania, and once they realized all that would be on board, apparently they were carrying some really expensive some things like money, they devised a plan to rob the train. Well, things didn't go as they planned, actually. Uh, George pulled out a gun, And in the heat of the moment, in in nervousness, he fired the gun and he killed one of the guards. And they didn't escape. James and George were not able to escape and were arrested and tried and found guilty and received their sentence. Execution by hanging. It actually would have been 192 years ago yesterday. On July 2nd, 1830, they were sentenced to be hanged. And it was a sentence that matched the crime. He killed somebody. Now he was going to be hanged for this. Now, 
George stood condemned. He was guilty. He just stood condemned. A strange thing happened, though. I mean, there was this movement that kind of arose long before social media, believe it or not, uh, that they, to, it was a movement to secure a presidential pardon for, for him, for George. And guess what? Andrew Jackson actually intervened with one. And here's the weird part. Andrew Jackson pardons him, but do you know what George Wilson did? He refused the pardon. Now, this had never happened before. In, in, in the history of, of the United States. So they went to the Supreme Court and they asked the Supreme Court, well, what do we do when someone refuses the presidential pardon? And Chief Justice John Marshall released the court's decision and this is what it said. A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. I mean, and guess what? They hung him. Uh, he, he, he was hanged. And so, here, do you know this is true to this day? You can receive a pardon from a president or from a governor. If you refuse the pardon, you remain condemned. And you have to serve out your sentence. See, hell is a place for those who stand condemned but refuse the free pardon of God available in Jesus Christ. Do you know in Christ, God has put in enough pardon for all the world's sins? He just has. And, uh, but if you refuse it, you stand condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. We stood condemned already. We're all, we all fall short. He came to pardon, but we refuse it. Well, that doesn't leave a lot of options. You see, if hell has a door, it's locked from the inside. It's not like, you know, Jesus was just dying to send someone to hell. Actually, he was dying to rescue the world. That's what God's plan is in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to work for it. You just have to receive the pardon. You know, and so heaven is a place whose inhabitants say to God, your will be done. Hell is a place where God says to its inhabitants, your will be done. Do you see the difference? All you're saying is, God, your will be done. I receive your pardon. That's how you get into Christ. And being in Christ assures you of union with God. But if you say, no, I don't want God. No, I don't want the pardon. I want to do my own thing. God eventually will say, well, your will be done. So in the end, you'll kind of get what you want. If a person wants not God in the end, that's what they'll get. Not God. But think about what not God entails. I mean, if God is the source of love, life, light, joy, peace, goodness, patience, and community. I mean, I could list off a lot of other good things. Well, hell is the absence of those things. That means hate and death. Darkness, despair, evil, intolerance, and loneliness. I mean, residents of hell have no relational access to God. And what do I mean by that? I mean, right now, whether a person is a believer or not a believer, we all, in some ways, have some relational access to God's goodness. Do you know the sun shines on, on the good and the evil person? Do you know the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous? It just does. But there's coming a time where... When things get summed up, 
Some people who reject the pardon will not have access, relational access, to God. Now, there's another kind of relational access that access is much deeper. If you're in Christ, you have access to God in a way that you didn't have before. But hell is a place where people will lack relational access to God's goodness. And you see, the believer can, gra- can gain greater access to God, especially when Christ returns, when the believer is glorified. Anyway, you can receive God's pardon by simply trusting in his perfect son. You're not perfect, and I'm not either. If you trust in what Jesus has accomplished, if you jump in the wheelbarrow, as it were, he'll get you to the other side. In him is God's pardon for whoever will put their trust in Jesus. This is a hard message. I mean, hell was not created for humans. It was created for the devil and his angels. There's no reason to be separated from God. But there is something in us that is selfish. The essence of sin is selfishness, where we don't care about our neighbor We don't care about the other. We're just focused on ourselves. Jesus came to open our eyes and say, one, we're not independent of God. You can't just do your own selfish thing. Tomorrow is Independence Day. And there were some good things that came out of Independence Day, but we shouldn't have an independent attitude toward God. We're dependent on God. And sometimes I think, really the first sin, the sin of pride, is an attitude of independence that you can do something apart from God. But even though that initial relationship was broken, God sends his son in the world not to condemn the world, but so that the world could be rescued through him, could be saved. We already stood condemned, but in Christ is a pardon. And I want to ask you the question. The praise and worship team uh, is going to come. Do you want your own thing, meaning apart from others, just live selfishly? Do you want not God? There's something in us that we want to be our own God. We want to just do our own thing and look out only for ourselves. We don't care about our neighbor, and we don't care about God. That, that attitude of rebellion will, can lead us to a place that's not God. If you really want not God, you can lock the door. From the inside. But Jesus literally died so that you could be united with God. He literally died to rescue the world from separation from God, to bring them into union. He has granted a pardon. Don't be like George Wilson and refuse the pardon. Just receive it. You don't have to earn it. That's the great thing about a pardon. You don't earn it. You don't actually deserve it. All you do is receive it. And if that's you, I'd like us to pray uh, right now. And and the prayer just goes like this. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm imperfect. I realize it. And I know you're a perfect God and you have perfect justice in, in addition to your perfect love. I'm asking you to forgive me. Lord, I receive your pardon. I don't, I'm tired of doing things my own way because this selfishness, this, this, uh, Um, the self-centeredness, God, is not doing me any good. Lord, I don't want to be alone. I want to live in your community with you, with your people. So, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me of my sins. Lord, I put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. Not just believing you exist or you are an historical figure, but, Lord, because I can't save myself, I put my whole trust in you. I'm climbing to the wheelbarrow, God. I 
I know you can get me from this point to, to yourself, to heaven, God. Lord, and Lord, I want to just ask that you be Lord and Savior of my life. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, and I thank you. I thank you for the pardon that I didn't deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer uh, and you really trusted in your heart, you've received the pardon. And you will get God. You won't get not God. Now we're going to segue. We're going to transition um, into another type of worship. You know, in John 3.16, the Bible says God gave his son because he loved the world. Jesus reminds us what it means for him to have given his life through communion. So uh, Jeff is going to come and lead us into a time of communion. But I want you to think about this. As he reads the scripture and explains this, this is what Jesus has done. This is how God has given himself and given his son. uh, And we are to remember this. So this is a time of worship. Let's prepare our hearts for that. Jeff, do you want to come? God has given men, God has given men the choice to make. And like Pastor Nathan said, we do not want to be like George Wilson. Is that was his name, George Wilson? Mm-hmm. George made a choice, and George uh, paid a consequence based on that choice. And we too here, we here as well, if we don't know Christ, we have a choice to make. And the good news is that Christ died for our sins. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So if you're sitting here today, and, and Pastor Nathan already did it, he invited, he invited those who don't know Christ to come know him, to surrender to him, to give their life to him. This is why the believers that are here today worshiping God, we know the goodness of God. And that's why Jesus said to come and remind one another to re- remember that's what uh, the uh, communion service is all about. Jesus uh, sat down with his disciples at the Last Supper, Supper, and he said, remember my broken body that was broken on behalf for you, that your sins were paid by my broken body, that your, your sins were washed away uh, with his blood, which is the new covenant. The old covenant was about the blood of of bulls and goats, animals that had to continuously be offered. But the new covenant was once for all. The the death of Jesus on the cross was one time for all men, for all sins that were ever committed. There's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here today and Jesus is just someone you've heard about, uh, you think he's a a good person or a, a teacher or whatever, if you're friends of a believer... That's not going to get you into heaven. If you're the child of a believer, that's not going to get you into heaven. Jesus died personally for each and every one that's here. That's the good news of why we're going to celebrate and remember uh, the, 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 the death of Jesus Christ for those who believe. So if you're a believer here, take that communion. And if you're not, if you have not given your life to Jesus, don't take it. But the good news is you can, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You could do it right now in your heart. 
it's a, it'll be a done deal, but it's up to you, okay? You have to make that choice, okay? I'm going to read a bit of scripture here. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why remembrance? Because we forget, okay? That's why we have to continue remembering uh, what Jesus has done for us. Not to, you don't have to be resaved, but we just, he wants us to just always in, in, fresh in our hearts and our minds of the goodness that happened on our behalf. We're, we're, we're forgetful people. So the a communion service is it's a, a time of celebration, of remembering of what Jesus has, do, has done on, that, on the behalf of a believer. So do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup, the new covenant, no more the, the old covenant of bulls and, and animals that had to continuously, continuously be offered, no more the new covenant once and for all. In my blood, do uh, the, new, the new covenant, in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're remembering the goodness of God, the salvation, the new life that a believer has in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus coming to dwell inside of us. A, a new person, okay? This is what we're celebrating here today. And as a believer, we're to proclaim the good news of God to those who don't know him. So this is our communion celebration today. Uh, gentlemen, uh, to serve, oh, where'd you guys go? Oh. <laughs> you see, I've done this many times before, okay. to the song. We're going to sing this together now. Um, this morning I was reading 
I happen to read Revelation 3.23 where it says that Jesus is always standing at the door, knocking, you know? In every 